Uh, let's go ahead and jump straight into our scripture for today. We're going to hear a story that you have probably heard before. How many of you, raise your hands, how many of you have heard the story of what's often called the prodigal son? Raise them up high. Great. Hey, you know what? I know that I ask you a lot of questions, right? I talk to you a lot during the sermons. I know that I do that, and I promise you I'm not being cute when I do that. Uh, When I ask you to raise your hand or when I ask you to respond, that's me getting a sense of what you know and who you are. So if you don't respond to me, then I'm just going to give you a whole bunch of stuff that you might already know and you might find boring. So that's why it's important if I ask you a question, both of my parents were public school teachers, which means that I can outweigh anybody. <laughs> so I, when I talk to you I, and I say I want an answer, I promise you I really do want that answer because a sermon is not something that's stagnant. A sermon is more of like a choose your own adventure. And we go through it together and it depends on where it is that we find ourselves in this particular day. So if you all look asleep, then... I'm going to change it versus if you're all super excited. All right, we all clear on that? I mean, we should have had, thank you. That was awesome. We should have had this conversation nine months ago when I first got here. We're turning to Luke 15, verses 1 through 2, and then verses 11 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed, the son longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When the son came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Good plan. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, the servant replied. 
And your father has killed the fattened calf because he was him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in the house. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But the, younger, the older son answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Friends, let's pray. God, as we come to your scripture and as we draw closer to your heart, we pray that we will be able to perceive your truth for us today. We are people who are easily distracted. We all have plans. We all have lists. We all have worries and anxieties. We all have things that we're looking forward to. And so, God, we pray that in this moment, by the work of your spirit, that you might preserve this place as a place where we can linger in your midst. We pray that you will open our hearts and open our souls, that we will be people who are vulnerable to your speaking. Help us to hear good news, to hear truth, so that we might be people of truth and good news as we leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today, my friends, we are continuing in a summer sermon series that we started a few weeks ago, looking carefully at how we are being called to change the lens that we use to interpret and live our lives. Changing that lens away from that regular common sense lens that we often refer to, although none of us actually knows how common it is, but common sense, the things that we in our society think are the obvious, the plain things to do. We're talking about how do we change that lens from common sense into a kingdom sense? How do we change the way that we interact in the world into a pattern of thinking and acting that reflects the values and the norms and the expectations of God's kingdom eternal and reflecting those actions and that kingdom here and now. And this sermon series, this idea of reframing things away from what is common sense for all of us and into something that is common sense to God, that isn't something new and unusual that we thought up for the first time here at SMCC, although maybe we would like to believe it. But the idea, this idea of reframing, of changing our perspective, of reinterpreting the circumstances of our lives by using the values of God's reign, this is what Jesus was doing throughout his ministry while he was here on earth over 2,000 years ago. This is what Jesus is all about. And the way that Jesus chose to teach this reframing, this changing of perspective, to reveal a new heavenly and eternal perspective of God, the way that he did that was by taking the normal, 
everyday things that happen in the lives of the people around him, things like working with yeast or like planting seeds or hosting banquets or getting dressed in party attire or family tensions, taking these things that were so normal to every day and using them to reveal the difference about how we would choose to live out those circumstances using our common sense and how God would choose to have us live out those circumstances using a kingdom sense. So Jesus is using stories of everyday things to show that difference between how our world works and how God's kingdom works. And we've heard these stories before. These short stories told by Jesus are what we in the church called parables. And these stories, these parables, are always about what the kingdom of God is like. These are not stories that are like folklore. How many of you were here last week? Raise your hands. A few of you. So last week, Jan Cook was talking about how the parables aren't something that are meant to be neat and tidy morality stories. They're not these little things that are meant to help us draw really careful lines between black and right and right and wrong. They don't teach us how to be good and reasonable people in the world, my friends, and that's really important to remember. The parables don't teach us how to be good and reasonable people in the world because, my friends, nothing about the kingdom of God is reasonable to us. Nothing about the way that the kingdom of God operates fits into our understanding of what is common sense. And our parable for today is a really good example of that. So like most of the parables that Jesus told, Jesus wasn't just someone who, you know, popped in there and told a parable out of the blue. It's not like he was hit by inspiration and like being a poet or something. Jesus always told parables in response to something else that was going on. And so today we see that Jesus is responding to what the temple leaders are saying. He's, Jesus has been talking to the crowds. The crowds are following him wherever he goes. So as he walks, he's teaching. And then, of course, there's these temple leaders who are standing over there in the corner, probably just whispering just loud enough, just so that he could hear. Look at who he's spending his time with. Look at all those sinners over there. Glad we're not one of them, right? They're really annoyed that Jesus is spending time with the wrong kind of people. And so Jesus, in turn, because that's one of the things that we learn about Jesus, right? Like he never, if someone is going to be um, sort of muttering or a bully, if someone is going to say something that's provocative, Jesus never just lets it go. (laughs) Jesus always gets in the way of someone saying something that's wildly inappropriate. And so Jesus replies to these temple leaders by saying these several parables in a row. First he tells a parable about a lost sheep, and then he tells a parable about a lost coin, and then he tells a parable about a couple of lost humans, and that's our parable for today. So in the story for today, we have these three men. We have a father and we have two sons. And one of his sons is really faithful, staying at home, working alongside the father, doing that thankless work of tending a farm that doesn't belong to him. I understand what that's like because I was raised by a man who was the only son of a farmer in rural Indiana. And when I used to ask my dad, what is it that you, why did you come out to California? He said, you know what, I had three options. He said, I could be a farmer, 
I could be a doctor or I could be a teacher and I could never really be a farmer because my dad would never really let me have control over that farm. So here he is doing this difficult, difficult work of tending a farm that doesn't belong to him, of living by rules and standards and ways of planting that maybe were not as modern as the ways that he knew he could be doing them. And then there's another son. There's another son who is just treacherous. The other son is so discontent with the idea of working on a farm that isn't his, with working within a system of authority that was different from his own sensibilities, that he demands that he has half of his future inheritance now. Mind you, remember, he's not asking, right? He says, Father, give me. And so here is this strange moment. Remember, parables always have a weird twist or maybe a few weird twists, and here's the first one. Because if you were the father to this son who was saying, give me half of my inheritance, how would you reply? No. No. Go back and do your chores. Don't be silly. This is ridiculous. We're not going to have any of this today. Right? And yet, that's not what the father does. Here we are, that instead of telling that son to bug off, he instead gives it to him. And off the son goes, And he lives this life of a king. He sort of reminds me of those kids, like when you, if any of you here went to college, and you went to college and there was that guy who like had his dad's credit card that was given to him for emergencies, but it was always that guy who bought the beers. He's like that guy, right? It's not that he's actually very wealthy. It's not that he's actually doing something like extravagant. If he had a whole bunch of money, then he would have never gone poor, right? He didn't have that much money, but he was living to his own devices. He was living by his own authority, and that was the whole point. He's completely on his own, completely independent, because suddenly there's nobody who's there to tell him no. And then it doesn't take long for the son to realize that now he's not just on his own, but that he is completely alone. And there's a difference. And we can anticipate one, but we don't always anticipate the other. Now this son, he's a foreigner in a land that didn't understand him. He's hungry during a time of famine with no one to watch his back. And so the son decides to turn back to his father. And he has this really good speech. He really thought it through. His common sense tells him that when he gets there back to his father, he probably can't expect those same privileges. So if he shows up sounding like he's just going to step right back into what he walked out of, then he knows that's probably not going to go over well. So then he creates this really great story, this really great speech. And he says, you know what? My father will, if, even if I'm not received as a son, I know that my father at least will not turn me away here, right? I'm going to find a way to make sure I could stay. The thing that's funny is he's using his common sense to try and figure out how he can find a way back into the father's good graces. But is this father one who uses common sense? Is he? No. 
And so it turns out that the father hadn't written off his son. It turns out that unlike how we would expect the story to go by our own common sense, it turns out that the father hadn't been nursing the bitterness of their final exchange. It turns out that he wasn't standing on the self-righteousness that would have been rightfully his. It turns out that this father had spent his time away from his son scanning the horizon every day searching for a glimpse of his son's returning. The scripture says that when the son was still a long way off, the father runs out of his house to his son, which tells us two things, right? Number one, that the father was looking, was looking and waiting and looking and expecting that the father had not given up looking, no matter how much time has passed. And the other thing that this teaches us about the father is that the father is not at all concerned about preserving his own dignity. The father really has nothing invested in looking like he's the one who should be right, is right. Have you, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, but you know, back then, people who owned land were considered to be fairly well off, like fairly regal. This works so much better when you have a preaching robe. But the thing was that when um, you were someone who was pretty regal, you wore robes. And um, I don't know how many men here have worn robes or like long skirts, but uh, I can tell you it's not all that easy to run in a long skirt. Amen, women? All right. So if you have to run, what do you have to do? Right? And so you hike it up. I once had a preacher wearing Bermuda shorts underneath it and hiked it up and ran all the way across the chancel. It was pretty great. So he's not dignified at all. He's not interested in standing there and thinking that somehow he's going to maintain that upper hand. He's not interested in dignity. He's not interested in turning away and living his own life. So the father gets to putting together this grand party and he's celebrating his son who has returned. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, the other son is working in the fields, and that other son, he has no idea what's just happened. We know this because the scripture says that when the other son gets close enough to the house to hear the music and the celebrating, he asks a servant what is going on, and once the servant tells him that it's a party that's being thrown for his brother, the other son refuses to go inside the house, refuses to participate in any fun. I will not have fun. See, the first Presbyterian in scripture right there refuses to participate in the joy of having his brother back. That was a joke. We have fun. So what happens now? Once again, the father comes out of the house. The scripture says that the father is pleading with his son to come in, to enjoy the party, to celebrate, but the brother, that eldest brother, he refuses, and he says, listen, He said, all this time I've been living here with you and you've never even given me the scrawny little goat to eat with my friends. And this son of yours comes back and you kill the fattened calf. What am I to you, chopped liver? Now, how many of you have more compassion for this older son who stayed and was faithful? Raise your hand and raise him high. Mm Mm-hmm. And how many of you have more compassion for that prodigal son who went running off? Yeah. For those of us who have been around the church for a while, this is one of those stories that we know really, really well. 
And I don't know what lessons you have learned from this father and his sons over the years, but I'm just going to point out two things that I think we need to keep in mind when we consider what this parable is teaching us about the kingdom of God and what this parable is teaching us about how we need to reshift our perspective on how we interact with the world. So here's the first thing. The first thing that I think we need to keep in mind is the fact that even though one son had run away and the other son had stayed in the field of his father's house, that both sons were distant from the father. Both sons were distant from the father. The first son had been overt in leaving his father behind. He had taken the money. He had gone to a foreign land. He was behaving in ways that would cause his father to blush. But when it comes to that first son, it says that the son couldn't have put any more physical distance between he and his father if he had tried. It's really obvious to see where that son had stepped away and lost and broken that relationship with his father. But this other son, the one who stayed in the field, he was distant from the father too. While the father had spent time each and every day scanning the horizon for his far-off son, that other son was nowhere near his father. He was off in the fields. He took no concern for his father who was fretting over his lost son. This, this son never made an offer to go and find his brother, which would have been typical given that day and age, so that he could bring that brother home and make his father happy. Once he finally comes back to his father's house and hears the party, he's mad because his father had never given him the resources to host his friends for a party. And you know what's absolutely crazy about that? The point of the party that the father was throwing for the prodigal, the point wasn't so that the prodigal could reconnect with all of his friends that he had lost touch with. The point was that the prodigal could celebrate with his father. And the other son had no interest in having the father at his party. That other son, he had lived with his father, but he didn't know him. He wanted to have a party for his friends, but never thought about the father who wanted to party with him. One son put this tangible physical space between him and his father, but the other son put an emotional mental space between him and his father. And ultimately, both sons had no idea of what mattered to their father the most, because what mattered the most to their father was them. We see that in particular with that eldest son, right? This son of yours. And we see the father won't have any of it. This brother of yours. The second thing that I think is important for us to keep in mind when we talk about this father and his sons is that the father responds to both of the sons in the exact same way, and that is with overflowing, unstoppable, generous love. The way that this story goes it turns out that there's only one thing that drives the father to leave his house. There's only one thing that causes him to step over that threshold out into the world, and that thing is to embrace his sons. The first time that he steps over that threshold is to race out to meet the sun on the horizon, and the time that the father crosses the threshold again is to plead with the other one to come inside. When the first son stutters out his finely crafted line about why he wants to return, the father doesn't even acknowledge it. He cuts him off. The son doesn't even get it all out. 
The father is insisting on dressing that son in splendor and getting that party underway. That's all that matters at that point. He makes it clear that all has been forgiven before an apology has even been formed. And then when the second son is balking outside, spewing bitterness and frustration, the father's answer is exactly the same. All that is mine is yours. You're missing out on the good time. I can't argue with you about something that isn't true. All that is mine is yours. The father responds to both sons with this boundless, reckless generosity. And you know what makes those sons similar to one another? They are both operating out of a perspective of scarcity. Yes, the scarcity that there's not going to be enough stuff, right? Like the youngest son, who probably wouldn't have gotten the inheritance the oldest one would, he, that's why he asks for the inheritance, right? Or that's why he takes it. Because he wants some. And there was no guarantee he would have any. So there's a scarcity there. There's a scarcity once he's out in the fields that he's not going to have enough food to eat. And so he comes back because there's just this fear that he's not going to have enough to survive. The eldest son shows the same thing. The eldest son is upset because there's no party for him, right? If you throw a party for the younger son, you will never throw a party for me. You would have used up all those resources. Both of the sons are operating off of this perspective of scarcity, but that is not the perspective the father has. Even though these sons are talking about a scarcity of resources, you know what they're really talking about? They're afraid that they will not belong. The youngest one, the one who ran away, he's afraid that he won't belong because he did things that he feared disqualified him from his father's love. But you know what? That oldest one, he also fears that he didn't belong. He had done everything right in his eyes. He had done the things that a good oldest son was supposed to do. And he feared that even though he had done it all right, that his father wouldn't have any room or space to celebrate him. Both sons were operating off of a feeling of scarcity, but they didn't realize that this father had no idea of how to perceive a lack of resources, or a lack of belonging. It never enters the father's mind that he wouldn't have enough wealth to give to his children, and it never enters the father's mind that they wouldn't belong. The father operates with an overwhelming, reckless generosity. And yet both sons are so distant from the father that they don't, they don't know it. And um, by chance today, thanks to Jenny Jones, there's this artist that I follow on Instagram named Scott Erickson. He goes by the handle Scott the Painter. And Jenny texted me this morning um, saying that she had found this image that Scott the Painter had put up. Can we put that image up? If you guys have a chance to follow Scott the Painter, I'd really encourage you to. But you can see in this image, you have the threshold of the house sort of reflecting a heart, Right? And then you have these two doors and you have the father on one side running out to meet his son on the horizon and you have the father on the other side reaching out for the child that refuses to come in. And one of the things that I loved about the caption that Scott put on this was he said, you know what, we have called this story the story of the prodigal son. But said, you know what, really it should be called 
the story of the house of belonging because that's the one thing that the father is consistent in, that both of his sons belong. And that's the good news, my friend, that wherever we have run or no matter how well we follow the rules, there is nothing that keeps us from the love of God, not height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, that we are recipients of God's reckless generosity. And if we find ourselves operating in the common sense of scarcity that says that if someone else gets something, then that means that we must not have enough, we need to knock it off. May we be people who live into this love for our Heavenly Father by in turn going out and being recklessly generous with the people around us. Please join me as we pray. God, as we consider what it means to be a kingdom people and to operate by a kingdom sense, we pray that you will interrupt our regular ways of thinking to call us to reflect your good news into the world. Good news that sometimes makes us feel foolish, that causes us to fear, that offends our sensibilities for what is common sense. Good news that brings in transformation and a hope eternal that can never be quenched, can never be stopped, can never be held back. May we be people who live and love as you love us. May we be people who bring people into the fold and assure them of their belonging, just as you do with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.